There is going to come a day in the not-too-distant future, I mean, I don't know how distant, but in the future, when you are going to be asked by someone, it might be one of your grandkids, it could be one of your children, it could be a friend that's not been intimately involved in your life in recent days or weeks or months, but there is going to come a time in the future when someone is going to ask you, what did you do in 2020 during the COVID-19 restrictions? We need to talk about that this morning. And before we do, let's pray. Father, there's an importance to realizing that we are sovereignly here in this place this morning, that you've directed us to be here. And sure, some of us couldn't wait to to drive here, park, and come in the doors, to greet others that we know, and to come in and worship you with glad and sincere hearts. But some of us, honestly, this is the last place we really want to be. And there are emotional skid marks through the the parking lot because either we were forced to be here um, or we really don't want to, but we're here anyway because maybe we're concerned what others might think if we weren't. But, Father, we're here, and you've got something to say to us, and we are so grateful that we have a God who's not remained silent, has not stuttered, but has clearly declared who He is and what He has in mind for us and what He has done for us in Jesus. And we need to hear from you this morning. So, Lord, I just confess, I know my words can't cut it. And so we're praying that your Holy Spirit will do what your Holy Spirit is so good at doing, and that is opening up the Word to us, revealing Jesus to us, and doing that deep work down in the heart where you can tinker around to change us where nobody or nothing else can do it. And so we invite you to do that this morning. Come speak in a way that every single one of us individually has heard from the God on high because we've been here this morning. Open up your word to us in a powerful way, we pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. We are living in unique days that have not been experienced in our country for multiple generations. Not since World War II have people faced such constant uncertainty. Yet what's distinct about this year, what's distinct about 2020, not just the unrelenting nature of the constant uncertainty, but that it's coming at us from many different directions. So for sure, for the last six months, we have been dealing with COVID-19 and the resulting restrictions and shutdowns that have occurred in our nation, even in this community. But then on top of that, we're also watching the calls for racial and social justice that some of them take, some have then taken to justify looting and violence. On top of that, this is an election year. And we are seeing political hatred taken to a whole new level as both parties throw stuff at each other. And then for those of you who have children yet in the home, The ambiguity of how are our kids going to receive an education when one week 
the school system says we're going to be meeting together and then the next week, no, we're online. And then the following week, no, it's a little bit of both. And you're just unsure as a parent, how are our kids going to be educated this year? <coughs> and then add on top of that the impact on, of unemployment and the resulting financial strain that so many individuals and families are feeling as jobs are lost, as some of you maybe even in this room have lost your business. And the unspoken question, or maybe at times it is spoken, but (laughs) at least it is unspoken, and it's on everybody's mind, is when will this end? And here's what's different. Different than any time other in history. No one knows. There is no clear ending to all this. The season of uncertainty just seems to be wide open. And that constant uncertainty that we're living with where no resolution seems to be in sight produces within inside of us then a weariness, a tiredness. And that tiredness is seen in multiple ways. For example, have you noticed how we and others around us seem to be living with such short fuses? For example, just watch the way people drive. While Lucy and I are between churches this time, we're working at Chick-fil-A in in Colorado Springs at one of the restaurants. Some days I get to go outside and direct traffic through the drive-thru. I've almost been run over multiple times. I have been yelled at. I have been cussed out. I've been F-bombed. I have been told that person is number one but not using the forefinger. I almost feel like wearing a shirt sometimes that just says, drive gently. It's just about chicken. (laughs) But you see it in the way people drive. There's a short fuse in them. Watch it on social media, the comments that are coming out of people as they type it in. Short fuses. Short fuses also in the behavior in stores. When you can't find the product that you want or the checkout line is just a little too long for you or going too slowly. Short fuses. Have you ever noticed also that there's a sense of not a whole lot of reserve in your tank? You just feel like you're kind of living thin or on the thin edge. That weariness is also seen at times where, because we're always on high alert, we're always vigilant to what's happening around us at any given moment or even in our nation. There's a mental fragmentation as we find it hard to concentrate. We're easily distracted. We we struggle to stay focused on any one thing. And then on top of all that, there's also a compassion fatigue. We want to care, but we're just so tired. And what this constant uncertainty reveals is that in our culture, in our nation, there are some very deep values at risk, the values of safety, the values of control. Because who hasn't in the last six months feel threatened by all of this. And if we're not careful, you're probably like Lucy and I, where we have watched our world begin to shrink down on us, where we are choosing just to focus on me and mine and having enough toilet paper for the next two years. Are we then any different than the world around us in the way we're facing constant, this constant uncertainty. 
How are we as the followers of Jesus Christ to respond on a daily basis to what's happening in our nation and around the world? I mean, the most repeated command in the Scriptures is do not fear. So how do we enter each day without being worried and fearful and anxious about all this constant uncertainty? Well, fortunately, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. The life of the Apostle Paul gives us a fascinating and incredibly encouraging look at how to face constant uncertainty. See, if you have your Bibles this morning, open up, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. And as you open your Bible or bring that up on your device, as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of background. Probably most of you are going to know this, but it's always good to be reminded of this. Paul has been imprisoned now in Rome as he writes this book of Philippians, not for six months, but for four years, as he awaits his trial before Caesar. What does that mean? Well, that means Paul is living with social distancing. He can't go where he wants. He can't gather with who he wants to be with. He is literally physically restricted from being around other people. It also means that if you've noticed, if you know much about the book of Philippians, he's puzzled by the behavior of others who seem intentionally to be doing things that will make matters worse for him. On top of all this, his very life is threatened. His life is hanging in the balance. He is at the mercy of the choices of others that may be fair and may not be fair. And you know what? He also doesn't know when and how this is all going to work out. Paul is facing constant uncertainty. And yet in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verse 1 to, I mean, verse 19 to verse 26 together this morning. As he describes his situation for the church in Philippi, he does something incredibly helpful for us. He, it's almost as if he's processing out loud through what he writes, how his heart is facing this constant uncertainty that, he, that he's going through. In other words, he models something for us. As I have walked myself through this, walk your same way or process through this in the very same way. And what we're going to examine and what we're going to see here is that Paul links together four key ideas, much like train cars that are coupled together. The first one helps the second one occur, the first and second one help the third one occur, and then the first three allow the fourth idea to occur. And he wants the church in Philippi to be able to face times of, of uncertainty, and he wants us to be able, 2,000 years later, to be able to face the uncertainty that's going on in our country right now. He's got four key ideas he wants to share with us. What's the first one? Well, Paul begins by pointing out, starting in verse 19, that there is to be a truth that grounds us. How does he begin this paragraph? He writes really, literally at the end of verse 18, very crummy um, verse uh, division here. But he says, yes, I will rejoice. Why? For I know. Okay, just stop right there for a moment. When facing uncertainty, there is a certainty to know. 
When Paul begins by saying, for I know, he's using a word that literally means to have seen and therefore to understand what is true. So, for example, if I told you that there was a time in my life when I wore hair all the way down to my shoulders, your reaction might be, nah, you're a bastard. That can't be true. Or if I also told you there was a time in my life when literally I had my hair out as an afro, and every morning I had a pick, and it would, would pick it out into a big afro shape, you might think, oh, no, that can't be true. And then my wife would walk up and open her purse and pull out two photographs and show them to you of indeed a time when my hair was all the way down to my shoulders and a time when I wore an afro. And you would look at those pictures and see, see for yourself the truth of my statements. That's what Paul is saying when he uses the word, I know. It's a personal realization that something is certain and true. So of all the truth that's in the Bible, what specific truth does Paul mention that is to bring a grounding stability when we face constant uncertainty? Well, verse 19, for I know that your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, here's the truth, this will turn out for my deliverance. What is the truth that should ground us? Our certainty is in our God who delivers. Paul is absolutely certain that he will personally experience deliverance. He knows that he will be rescued. He knows that he will be saved. But we need to understand that in the New Testament, that word deliverance is used in two different ways. In one way, it's used to literally describe being rescued from danger. Paul experienced that right in Philippi. Acts chapter 16 tells us about the time he and Silas were unjustly beaten and then thrown into prison. And God, by the use of an earthquake, rescued them. There's another situation in Paul's life. We don't know exactly when it happened, but hold your finger here in Philippians 1 and turn back left in the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and he's going to describe to us another time when he was facing uncertainty. Look at, with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 8. Paul writes and says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Real quick sidebar here. Who's this talking? This is Paul. Paul was at the end of his rope. He had lost hope. And yet, how does he continue? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us. Here's that same word that we see in, in Philippians 1, 19. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. Not only that, look how He goes on. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. 
See, our lives are to be grounded in the fact that we've got a God who personally will deliver us. Or as 2 Peter chapter 9 encourages us to believe, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And that's one way that this word deliverance is used. God will step in into our very lives and bring a rescue. But there's a second way this word's also used. It's also used to describe the ultimate safety that we have. For example, 1 Peter 1.5, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, that's the same word, deliverance and salvation are often used, or, uh, that's the same uh, translation in English. You're guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's not a deliverance now, it's a deliverance ultimately. Heaven, eternal life is ours. Or 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 18 also describes it. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. Folks, Paul is grounded in this truth. God is going to deliver him. Either by rescuing him from the uncertainty of the world situation that he's living in or by welcoming him home to the fullness of eternal life. I'm going to be delivered one way or the other. But here's where the Bible asks us to be incredibly honest. God doesn't always provide a deliverance from the brokenness of this world. But isn't that what we typically want? I want to be delivered from the pain, the hassle, the frustration. Sometimes it's a, a deliverance through where we get to experience His presence and His power as enough for us in the midst of the pain we have. And did you notice in verse 9 that this certainty that Paul has came from both human and divine intervention? Again, notice in verse 19 back in Philippians 1. See, I know this. Why? Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So on the horizontal level, people were praying and interceding for Paul, and that helped him be certain of, my God is going to save me. But also there's a vertical level going on here. The Holy Spirit helped him to stay grounded in this truth that he had a God who would deliver him. So I'm sitting in my home in Colorado Springs, and I'm working my way through this passage, and I stop right here at verse 19, and I say, Rick, has this truth grounded you? That's a fair question this morning. Has this truth grounded you? Am I hanging on by faith to the truth that I've got a God who saves? He knows, He cares, and He can do something about it. That He can rescue me, He can rescue you from anything and everything. Is this a core conviction in your gut that you're counting on? Or in the midst of the uncertainty of these days in the United States, 
Is fear driving our choices and setting the tone of our heart each day? There have been many times in this last six months where, for various reasons, God has had to lead me back to Isaiah 33, 6. And He will be the stability of your times, a rich store of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. And the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Okay, remember, Paul's processing with us. He's not so much making declarative statements about what to do and what to believe as much as he's just letting us inside his heart and mind as he walks through facing his constant uncertainty. And so he links the first idea that there's a truth that ought to ground us now with a second idea, and that is there is a hope that guides us. So there's a truth that grounds us, but then there's a hope that guides us, and that's in verse 20 and verse 21. Now, watch the shift of focus in what Paul writes. In verse 19, he's talking about what he believes. Now, starting in verse 20, he moves on to how he behaves. And like Paul, we can have a positive attitude about the future. Look at how verse 20 starts. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope. See, that's, see how he describes his positive attitude? Eager expectation and hope. Now, when things are uncertain, when it looks like they're going to stay that way for a while, it really is difficult to look forward to the coming days with a positive attitude. I mean, some people wake up these days and their first thought is, good morning, Lord. Other people wake up and the first thing in the morning and they think, oh, good Lord, it's morning. <laughs> but because of the truth my God will deliver, and that's grounded him. Paul is now eagerly looking forward to watching how God is going to do that. Now, the uncertainty wasn't taken away. He didn't know how it was going to work, that God would deliver. He didn't know when the deliverance was going to come, but he couldn't wait each morning to see if God's going to show up today and do it, and how he was going to do it. Paul's hope in the midst of, of his uncertainty, it guided his behavior. Look at what he writes. Until deliverance comes, we are to look forward to our life honoring Jesus Christ. Look at how verse 20 continues. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Isn't this amazing stuff? I mean, look at what Paul wants more than anything else in the world. He doesn't want a better jail cell with a better view. He's not wanting better food. He doesn't want a warmer blanket. He doesn't even want a weekend pass to be able to go be with his friends. The priority for Paul is that his actions will honor Jesus. What he wants more than anything else is that as people look at his life and the way he's living in the face of uncertainty is that they will honor Jesus Christ. 
Now, by the way, did you notice in verse 20 that that's going to take courage? Why? Why is it going to take courage to have that as, as a priority when we face constant uncertainty? Well, Paul explains why. Look at verse 21. It starts with the word for, meaning this is explaining what I've just said. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That explains why it's going to take courage to live in a way where Christ is honored in my body is because if Christ is my life and to die is gain, that is so countercultural. That is literally swimming upstream. It is going against the current because so few people are headed that way. So to head that way, we're going to feel alone. We're going to need courage. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. How would most people fill in those blanks? For me to live is blank. How would people fill that out? Some of them would say, oh, it's to be successful. It's to accumulate as, as much as I can uh, around me. To live, it's for the applause of other people. I want them to think a lot about me. To live, it's, it's for comfort. It's for safety. Life is to be held on to at all costs. And to die is blank. Most people would say to die is loss. To die, that's the end. To, to die, that's, to, that's defeat. To die, avoided at all costs. Yet when there is a truth that grounds us, that allows us then to have a hope which guides us, then the words of Paul, even back in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, start coming to mind. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. All of our behavior is to honor Jesus. And that's our hope. That's our eager expectation because of we've been grounded in a God who will save. So when those two things are in place, the truth that's grounds helps us with the hope that uh, guides. It brings us then to the third important element, starting in verse 22. Then there are options that refine us. Verse 22 begins with the word if. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I, I, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. By the way, we can't read these words without realizing that Paul honestly doesn't know how this is going to turn out for him. His form of uncertainty is really extreme. It, it's life or death, and for some that are at risk for COVID-19, that's how extreme it can be. It could be life. It could be death. Yet like Paul, when we're grounded in God's deliverance and our eager hope is to live then for Christ's reputation, 
Folks, we are then given this wonderful freedom in life. And in that freedom, we can candidly assess the alternatives that are in front of us. And that's why I love what Paul does here. It's almost as if Paul is making two lists which describe and and contrast or compare the two options that are in front of him. So on the one hand, Paul writes that I might face death. Look at the three descriptions in verse 23 of what that option entails. First, verse 23, he says that means I would depart. In other words, literally, he would go out of then this world. Second description in verse 23, but then that means I get to be with Christ. That which he has been believing by faith, his eyes now will get to see as he is face to face with the Savior. Verse 23, that means that all this is better for me if I die. Now, on the other hand, he makes another list. Three characteristics as well. Verse 24, instead of departing if he dies, to continue to have life means I'm going to remain. I'm going to, in other words, I'm going to stay in this world, this time and space continuum that I'm in. Second description, verse 22, to have life means time for more fruitful labor. In verse 24, the third characteristic, if I have life, well, that's more necessary for you. See, the power of building a list of each each alternative in the face of constant uncertainty is that it brings clarity. When we name things and call them for what they really are in our lists, we begin to see things from God's perspective, and it refines us. And by the way, it is normal to feel caught between the options. Paul was. Did you notice that? Look at the end of verse 22. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Now, some of your translations don't use the word choose. They use the word prefer, which is probably the better translation. In other words, it's really not up to Paul's choice. But he doesn't know what he prefers here. Death, life? I don't know. I mean, look at the next statement in verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. Luke chapter 8 and verse 45 uses that very same word, hard-pressed. It describes Jesus' popularity, and the crowds came and pressed in around Him. So that means there are going to be times when we feel pressured by the options that are in front of us, pressured maybe by the expectations of others, pressured these days by what the media says we ought to be believing. In Paul's case, he had people around him, I'm sure, that were saying, Paul, stay, we need you. And yet in his own heart, Paul wants to go home. Remember, again, look at those descriptions. He says, this is better for me, far better for me. So weighing our options has this refining power to it that clarifies what our minds are thinking and what our hearts truly want. And it did it for Paul. For as he describes the way he processed facing his uncertainty, he mentions now the very fourth thing that we need to see, and that is there is a conviction then that will settle us. Look at how verse 25 begins, convinced 
of this. Paul has now come to a settled conviction amid his current uncertainty. It was a conviction that was born from weighing the options. Well, what was it that convinced Paul? And what was it that that should convince us? When he weighed his options, he came to something very powerful at the very end. Look at the last words of verse 24 one more time. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. In other words, what did he come to and understand? There is something more necessary. Again, when we weigh our options that are before us, our values and preferences get refined. Clarity comes as we begin to see what is the most necessary thing. Paul is no longer hard-pressed. Rather, he's come to a settled confidence. Verse 25 describes it. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you. The necessary thing is what has yet to happen in the lives of others. See, Paul understood real clearly that life is given to us to invest in other people. Even in the midst of constant uncertainty, for the followers of Jesus Christ, life is given to us by God to bless and to benefit others. And like Paul, our influence of others should result in a number of things. In fact, three things that he describes here in verse 25 and verse 26. First of all, other people's progress in the faith. Our life has an influence on others that should encourage other people to grow and mature in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Second thing, for their joy in the faith. Again, our influence in other people ought to encourage them to experience glad and joyful hearts. Third thing, that they will glorify Christ. In other words, they, in the Philippians' case, they're going to honor the Lord for what they see Him doing in the life of Paul. Likewise, others will look at our lives and give glory to Jesus Christ because what they see Him doing inside of us and through us. And that was Paul's confidence that settled him. I'm going to remain because life is going to be given and you still need me. But that doesn't mean that like Paul, we will always come to the same conclusion. We know by church history that After Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, he was released from jail and was allowed to continue his ministry in the whole Mediterranean area. We also know that a few years later he was rearrested, and he faced a new trial before a new Caesar. This time the Caesar was Nero. If you know much about Roman history, Nero was not exactly a friend of Christians. In fact, we know that he started a bunch of fires in Rome to burn down the slums and then blame it on the believers, the followers of Christ. 
So once again, in prison, Paul writes about his uncertain situation, but this time his conviction is different. If you're here in Philippians, just turn to the right a few books to 2 Timothy and go to chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6 and verse 7, Paul has a whole different perspective of what's about ready to happen to him. Listen to his words. He writes and says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Isn't that interesting? Now, as he weighs the options, he comes to a totally different conviction. He's convinced that his deliverance now is not through this, but it's to something else. He's headed home. So what does he do here? He passes the torch of investing in the lives of others to his dear friend Timothy because now he's ready. It's time for him to be face-to-face and be with Jesus at last. In Cairo, Egypt, there is a garbage-lined alleyway that leads to an abandoned graveyard. That graveyard for many, many years had been where expatriates were buried, Brits, those from Europe. But in that graveyard is an American buried there. His name is William Borden. At one point in his life, William was the heir to the Borden Dairy Estate out of Chicago, which meant by the time he was 21, Borden was a millionaire. Before he started his bachelor's studies, though, Borden took a trip around the world. The family fortune allowed him to have that pleasure. His dad thought it would be a good idea for him to see what the world was like. But his heavenly father did something powerful in that trip around the world. He grabbed Borden's heart for the Muslims in western China that had never had a chance to know about Jesus or never hear the gospel. William Borden came home from that trip convinced, convinced that he needed to be a missionary, convinced that he needed to be the one to take the gospel to western China to the Muslims. And so over the next four years, while he did his bachelor training and prepared to be a missionary, during those four years, he gave his his entire fortune away. And then after graduation, he came to Cairo, Egypt to study Arabic before heading into western China. But just four months after arriving in Cairo, he, in his language studies, somehow contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the age of 25. Now buried in that abandoned graveyard. But on his tombstone are engraved words that describe his love for Jesus, his commitment to the Muslim people, the sacrifices out of his love for God's kingdom. And then the inscription ends with these words. Apart from faith in Christ, 
There is no explanation for such a life. What explains my life? What explains your life during these days of constant uncertainty? Is there a truth that grounds us? Is there a hope that's guiding us? Are we letting the options before us refine us? And is there a confidence that settles us? My hope and prayer for my life, for Lucy's life, my hope and prayer for your life this morning is that those who are around us are watching our lives and silently saying, Jesus is the only explanation for such a life.